0: Welcome to Specscast, the podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and this time on the podcast, a few of us sit down to discuss some recent events in space. We haven't had an episode since last November, and we catch up on current events in the space industry. We recorded this episode on February 3rd, and later got together to discuss our reactions to SpaceX's Falcon Heavy launch on Wednesday, February 7th. As I mentioned before, a few of us just got together to talk about things, so we're really going back to our roots here, and as such, the audio quality kind of suffers a little bit, so bear with us. One of the reasons why we haven't had an episode since November is because we're all spread out across three different time zones, all with different equipment, all with different schedules, and it's been pretty hectic, so I appreciate your listening. Um, Those of you that are still subscribed, thank you. And we have things in the works, getting new episodes to you guys, talking about space, and it's going to be a really exciting year. Thanks. Welcome to we where a podcast talking about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil. I'm Drew. And I'm TJ. Howdy. You got to have the howdy. It's been a while.
1: We're three guys talking about space we all, we all did something technical for our education, and we were all passionate about space. Yeah, and uh, so today we're going
0: to sit around and chat about recent news since we haven't gotten on mic like, in six months or something ridiculous, and a lot's been happening. One thing we always love to talk about and kind of started this podcast was SpaceX conversation, because SpaceX always likes to do things unconventionally, right? Surprise and us. Even if they are doing something conventional, it ends up being controversial.
1: Uh, case in point, Zuma. Zuma launched on January 7th. At yeah, so, 8 p.m. So, EST.
0: Right. January 7th, SpaceX launched. Um, highly classified mission. Uh, Northrop Grumman has the Zuma payload. You don't know what it is or what it does. Uh, it's all highly classified. SpaceX launched it. And then after, you know, the second stage did its thing, uh, they never heard from it, right? So... There were no cameras to see what happened or if it was a good separation, all this other stuff, because it was classified. And now things went dark and people are pointing fingers, asking questions, what happened? Um, naturally, the blame falls on the new guy on the block. Uh, but uh, I, I just kind of wanted your opinions. You know, what in times where things are classified and blame, everybody wants to throw blame and should on a billion dollar payload that is obviously super important and um, military stuff is usually very important for security reasons, all this other stuff. You know, it blame is kind of necessary, right? What, what do you guys think? Is SpaceX kind so, of
1: getting the brunt of it? Or? Well, SpaceX is certainly getting the brunt of it, but they were very quick to come out and say, I believe Gwen Shotwell tweeted that, according to all their data, Falcon performed flawlessly. So they were very quick to say, if, I, if there's I, an I, issue, it's not our fault. Of
2: course they would say that.
1: Well, yes. Of course,
2: anyone would say that. Well, they, they they don't say that. When they have a failure, they, they very clearly say we've have an, have an issue. Uh, we can step back a little bit. So there's the reason this is such a big deal is that it, the way things played out wasn't how a traditional rocket successor failure would be conveyed to the public. So it was a top secret mission, which when SpaceX do does does do webcast for classified missions, but they'll cut off the feed um, for the second stage. So you'll get stage separation, and then that'll be either be there, or the first stage will come back and return, uh, and they won't cover second stage, they won't cover payload deployment and all that. So that's what happened for this one. The booster came back to return to launch site. However, uh, hours later, uh, space reporters began to hear hints that maybe the payload mission wasn't completely successful. Because usually the Air Force or whatever government body, we don't know which government body did this mission, would put out confirmation, this mission, USA, DASH, whatever, is successfully in orbit. So the rumor was that White House aides, not White House aides, but congressional aides, uh, had leaked to the press that they were going to an emergency meeting uh, to be informed about this mission, about the failure of this mission, because it's classified. It's either hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars. Elon said it might have been their most expensive payload yet. And so, according to the rumors that are being reported, there was an emergency congressional meeting to inform Congress the satellite had failed. So that's what started this, right? So it's not your traditional, uh, press release. It was good. It was bad. And also, there's no visual, uh, Confirmation either way. So that kind of got the conspiracy train running very quickly. Um, but there's also some other reports that the second stage deorbited as planned. So, what SpaceX does um, for missions that are not full energy missions, they still have some remaining fuel, they will turn on the second stage for one last burn to deorbit into the Indian Ocean to reduce space debris. And that's what happened for this mission. Um, And so you would assume that if the rumor that the payload hadn't detached from the satellite or from the second stage or something along those lines, they would want more time. Because they have several days to try to jury-rig a fix. And never uh, discount the efforts of satellite engineers. They are able to find ways of solving problems remotely, uh, that would blow your mind. So it's interesting that the rocket deorbited. So instead of deorbiting,
0: they could have left it in orbit for a little bit longer to troubleshoot, maybe fix the problem, and then deorbit. But the, the controversy comes in because it deorbited right
2: away. So they deorbit right away according to the the mission plan and the mission schedule. And so that's a an argument in favor of. The mission went on without a hitch. So the mission detached on the other side.
1: We're all very sure. Well, we're pretty sure that Zuma was a failure. But there were conspiracy theories set out there that all of this, like yeah. leak from the AIDS is just to throw people off the scent, yeah, like and it's operating fine. If they want to have
0: orbital stealth, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. The one of the popular conspiracy theories is that it's a stealth satellite. And there is some credence to that uh, because there was a program called MISTI, which is supposed to be a low-observable satellite. And it looks like uh, the U.S. launched two of those in the late 90s, early 2000s. However, despite spending billions and billions of dollars on a stealth satellite, they were able to be relatively easily tracked once they launched. And there's all sorts of back and forth on whether those were decoys are being tracked or the real thing back and forth uh, which is hard for us to know. The bottom line is when you have something in orbit that's moving along a pretty much fixed path and it has to have either some reflective surfaces to collect sunlight uh, or have body surfaces that can be detected by radar, it's not trivial but it's Relatively straightforward into to detect and track those satellites, not just for the U.S. but for Russia, China, and lots of other smaller countries. It's Not a top-secret, advanced capability. So some people are saying this is a new attempt at misty. Uh, some people are saying that I saw one conspiracy that it was a, a surprise attack on North Korea. It doesn't make any sense because we didn't attack North Korea on January seventh. But who knows? After that,
0: uh, there, there were still talks and trying to figure out what happened, but the the hype kind of died down after a little while, and so I, I think it's just one of those fun things to think about gets people's minds going. But, yeah,
1: it'll just be a footnote in history.
2: <laughs> I think the, the biggest thing is that their immediate next launch wasn't delayed. It didn't affect their schedule, which along with their public statement say, it wasn't our rocket, it, we're going to keep on doing our thing without any major changes.
1: Which, as they keep on keeping on, Falcon Heavy, which has had its fair share of delays, has had its static fire at this point, And we're now hyping up, ready for the launch, which should be happening this upcoming Tuesday. February 6th, right? February 6th. Yeah. So, Falcon Heavy perpetually what perpetually
0: like a year away for a while then perpetually six months for a while then weeks now days hopefully it doesn't get delayed um but knowing after five years after five years right but um falcon heavy will be taking off from a pad uh the historic launch pad in cape canaveral and um launching elon's uh tesla roadster uh into orbit around the sun um even the static fire is actually really interesting because that's the first time we've had twenty-seven Merlin One D engines firing at the
1: same time, uh all at once. TJ, you can correct me, but I believe this is the once this operates, this'll be the most powerful rocket currently in operation. Correct. Yeah. Um do we have stats on how it is compared
0: to other rockets?
2: So it has twenty two meganewtons of thrust. Um, which is a good chunk under the space shuttle, but it has a higher orbital payload because it's not lifting a orbiter with wings and life support, etc. Uh, so for pure payload mass to LEO, uh, it's very, very competitive, especially in expendable mode, which it won't probably fly in ever uh, because it's so much cheaper to fly reusable. Uh, but it also has good performance to the moon and to Mars,
1: Right. I saw that there was there was a lot of talk about how short the the static fire was. It was only a few seconds, yeah, I was
0: confused about that. Um
1: I've heard that that's because it's just so powerful. You can't have them all on for a full test duration. uh, it might damage the pad um t j can you talk to that at all?
0: Yeah, can I expand on this question a little bit? So for most of the time, static fire is kind of like they simulate a launch but hold it down so it doesn't fly away right They like basically empty the tanks. Uh, for a normal Falcon 9, um, and then I watched the video, and it was on-off. You see it all the steam, um, but it was basically they just burped it, right? So did they fill the tanks all the way? Like, why is it because it wouldn't damage the pad, or or the hold-down clamps weren't strong enough? Is there any explanation to
2: that? So with static fires, there are usually two uh, per-core, per-launch campaign. So they'll go to McGregor and they'll do a full, usually a full duration static fire. So they have a new uh, under, not fully underground, but uh, below surface level uh, trench they can fire into. And they'll put a cap on top and push down with the equivalent weight of a second stage Plus, they have the traditional mounting brackets that hold onto the So, octo-web. is that
0: kind of like disembodied engines, or is that mounted up to, made into the whole octaweb structures and all that?
2: That is, that is a, f- so each engine gets uh, fired individually, right. then they get combined into an octaweb, attached to a first stage. That first stage gets test fired for full duration. I'm uh, not, not sure if the, every stage gets a full duration fire. Uh, I think reused stages might get a shorter uh, fire. But then, that gets sent to the cape, the second stage shows up, payload, and everything gets mated. With Falcon Heavy, the two side boosters are reused boosters from prior flights. So they've already gone through a whole launch campaign. They went to, to uh, McGregor, they had a full static fire, went to the cape, we saw parts coming and going. The center core is a new core. It's got the new attachment struts that fold into the body. After stage separation, it's got extra strengthening probably under the tank skin. That had a full duration static fire, went to the cape, they put everything together, and then they took it out to the pad. And the full static fire is important because it's, again, 27 engines firing together. You have three individual cores holding the the force and uh, undergoing stress. But when they do uh, launch pad static fires, they treat them as full, wet dress rehearsals. So that's what actually Falcon Heavy did several times before their Saturn Fire. They filled the tanks up all the way, they have everything as they'd be ready to go for a launch, to go for the full countdown, they send it to the computer, everything, even fill up the second stage, ignite, and they just don't send the launch pad uh, release command, and then they send a, a shutdown command. So that's what they do for fa- uh, Falcon 9 launches. That's what they did for Falcon Heavy. Now, with regards to the duration, there's a myriad of reasons why it could have been longer or shorter. Um, the pad can take, is rated for much more thrust because uh, it's rated for a uprated Saturn V or a Nova rocket. Saturn V is not, or Falcon Heavy is not close to that. But they also have to, Uh, dump water to protect for sound suppression and for heat suppression off the pad. So maybe it's a limit of how much water they have, because a 12-second burn is plenty of time for the rocket to get off the pad. So maybe they didn't have enough water, maybe heat damage to the pad wasn't worth it, who knows. Oh, there's one more thing. Uh, There was the uh, GovSat1 stage that will... just What's this?
0: Please explain. What is GovSat1?
2: So, GoSat-1 is a ESA uh, satellite venture, Uh, and that was launched on the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. Oh, is this the
1: Luxembourg uh, satellite?
2: Yes, yes. ESA and Luxembourg combination satellite. And uh, it was supposed to be expendable, because they have a Block 3 Falcon 9, and they're trying to just kind of get rid of them, because they're ending up leaving them in parking lots outside, there's just no space left. Um, but it did have grid fins and it did have landing lights. And so it launched, second stage, put the satellite successfully in orbit, and they ended up testing a new re-entry profile. It was a very high retro-propulsion burn. We're assuming three engines at once at the very last second. So even a more extreme hover-slam than we've seen with a single engine. Uh, and surprisingly, uh, their water-landing attempt was more successful than they had planned. And not only did the stage softly impact the water, when it fell over, it did not lose structural integrity. So there's a floating Falcon 9 booster out in the ocean.
0: Yeah, so it didn't blow up. <laughs> and um, looking at it, it, people are like, uh, the common joke is to say, "Wow, this looks like Kerbal Space Program," uh, but it actually—it it looks, looks exactly, exactly like, like, like Kerbal, Space Kerbal Space
2: Program. Program. Because it's just some rocket pieces floating half in the water with legs sticking out in random directions. You're like, how?
0: Yeah, so that was like, it, it, they just didn't want to risk damaging their ship. So it was another water landing like they did before they started uh, recovering rockets. They mm-hmm. just tested a new profile.
2: Yeah, especially so, so since the drone ship is needed for Falcon Heavy, it's to be really close. Catching a rocket coming back, pulling it off, and getting back on station for the and the point launch. is
0: to squeeze more performance or um, higher orbits and things out of reusable launches rather like so you can get closer to that limit. Um,
2: exactly the the quicker your burn is so gravity is applying an acceleration uh, every second so the the less seconds you are firing working against gravity the less total fuel you have to use.
0: So if you can fire at the very last second, that's why it's called the suicide burn. At the very last second, you have to fire just enough and just strong enough so you don't um, use too much, use up all your fuel, and don't smash into the net. deck. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Theoretically, if you could apply the perfect amount of force to get your velocity to zero at the very last second, that would be the most energy efficient way to land. And uh, that's kind of what Soyuz does, where they have a uh, solid charge at the bottom of the capsule that fires right before impact to slow them down so they don't hit at full speed.
0: Cool. I'm glad they're still iterating on Falcon 9 um, and making the most of every launch.
2: Yeah. And we should see Block 5 starting in late February or May or February or March.
0: Yeah. So let's take a break from SpaceX for a little bit and talk about other rocket companies and uh, launch providers. So I wanted to bring up Rocket Labs. Rocket Labs uh, tested their Electron rocket with still testing. I think they have funny names for these. So the first one that
1: fired uh, last year was just a test, Mm -hmm. and that one made it to space but not to orbit. Uh, So their second one that launched was still testing. Mm -hmm. And that's the one that launched recently and was a successful orbital insertion and launched, I believe three payloads. Right. So before we talk about the payloads, I just want to say that this is commendable and uh,
0: really cool because now we're seeing some success, good news for small, very small payloads to Leo. Um, Electron is going to be very competitive for these small sats. You don't have to, be a secondary payload on a Falcon 9 or, um, you know, uh, any other big uh, rocket. You can be a primary payload sort
1: of thing. They're not the only ones, right? No, there's, uh, I believe Vector um, has a similar competitor rocket, and both of these companies have a surprisingly low cost per kilogram to orbit. Uh, I don't know that Vector...
2: Well, it's not low. Well, compare the like low total cost to orbit. Yeah, I mean it... it's a very high cost per kilogram. It's twenty two thousand dollars cheaper than a hundred k. Yes.
1: Well, yeah, I mean I not mean, I not something you could just many read...
2: rockets are hundred k per kilogram. The space shuttle was like twenty to thirty k. All
1: right, compared to to
2: put it in perspective, a Falcon Nine is fifty hundred per kilogram.
1: Okay, so if I was so it's not cheap per
2: kilogram; it's cheap per full launch, which is important because that lets you choose your own orbit, it lets you choose your own launch date, and gives you a lot of flexibility.
0: So, if I was a university program, or um, you know, I wanted to launch uh, a CubeSat for my own research, um, and I wanted to put it into into Leo, like is that the trade that would happen? Like, I could either be a secondary payload for cheap and get into Leo, but I'd have to be like, you know, it's going to be within this range. Okay, I can deal with that. But I'd really prefer that one, but that's not really attainable. So I'm just going to deal with what I get, get it into space and go. Versus launch with Electron, get to choose my orbital parameters, get exactly what I want, and have to shell out a little more. Is that the trade space?
2: Exactly. And so it's it's trading flexibility and... Like, that perfectness for cost. But it's a, a order of magnitude cheaper than it would be, right? Because a Falcon 9 is $60 million, while an Electron is $6 million.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I I hope this will bring uh, some more growth to small fats. I, I don't see why it wouldn't, really. Uh, but it it seems like a small piece of the market, to be honest.
2: But the real benefit is with small sets, not rather than cubesats, right? Anything in that like 50 to 100 kilogram space, uh, you can now, you know, it's a lot harder to get those integrated into a rideshare because they don't fit into that cubesat, CubeSat standard pod, And so now you for $6 million, which is not unreasonable for a 100 kilogram satellite, uh, you can actually get that up into space. Into exactly the orbit you want.
1: Yeah, and SpecsCast has covered the SmallSat conference for the past two years. And it seems like that industry and that market space is growing really, really quickly. So this may be a fantastic uh, decision by Rocket Labs to be the launch provider for this market. Yeah. I love this rocket. So there's a good book. It's just such a... It's cute. It's adorable. (laughs) Um, uh, But it's also technically awesome. Uh, a lot of it is made through additive manufacturing. The Rutherford engines are largely 3D printed. The uh, body, I believe, is a additive manufactured carbon fiber layup. Uh, so there's a lot of really cool things with this rocket.
2: Yeah, I think they're their first operational orbital rocket with a composite tank. And that gives them a huge step up in mass fraction, which lets them put up a payload for something that is you know that that small discussion point here. Also, they have sorry, What was that go ahead? Also, they have uh, they very coyly copied uh, a Falcon Nine where they have nine first stage engines, but they're much much smaller. <coughs> uh, Drew mentioned the Rutherford's, um, and those are an excellent uh, an excellent engine. They just passed uh, something like five hundred. Yep, they just had their five uh, uh, hundred fires. So, because they make the engines much smaller, they can not truly mass produce them, but rapidly produce them and get some cost savings in, in that uh, way. Also, the main feature about the Rutherford engine and the reason it's called Electron is they use electric turbopumps, which is something that uh, we haven't seen on an operational orbital rocket before. On a traditional rocket, uh, you, depending on what cycle you use, you take some of the fuel the rocket is going to burn burn that separately in its own smaller combustion chamber to create hot compressed gas and then run that through turbines and those turbines take in more fuel at a high volume and high pressure and that lets you have a high pressure combustion chamber for your main rocket. And that's great, however, a certain percentage of your fuel is burning before the main combustion chamber at a lower efficiency. So that's why the Merlin 1D, while it's cheap and relatively simple, doesn't have uh, the pure close to theoretical maximum that a kerosene and liquid oxygen engine could have because of that gas generator bleed. However, with an electric turbo pump, all of your fuel goes through the main combustion chamber and you're just discharging batteries. And so they actually have an ISP of something like 311 seconds, which is a rather significant improvement over the Merlin 1D uh, in efficiency Uh, which definitely helps them uh, with their small rocket approach.
1: Now, I didn't read an article about this, but I heard from someone that the batteries that run these are ejected as they are depleted, which...
2: Yeah, I think on the the second stage they have battery clips, and as the battery pack is depleted, they dump it out so they can reduce their dry mass, uh, because the batteries make up a significant fraction of the second stage mass, so if they can get can dump those they can have a much more efficient second stage that's so
0: Kerbal. um anyway uh one thing i wanted to ask is like okay cool composite um fuel tanks and stuff one thing that we've been talking a lot about especially with BFR is like composite fuel tanks because reusability you know if the point of investing more money into um the composite materials is because they're so expensive. So it's better to reuse them because then, you know, it's not worth being expendable with all this expensive stuff, but electron is expendable and it's also, uh, largely composite. So is that just like the mass fraction is so much more beneficial? Um, like, like, <laughs> like it seems kind of uh, backwards to me from what we've discussed in the past.
2: I think it's more of a kind of solving for payload mass rather than total cost because if you can increase your payload mass every one kilogram, you're reducing that price per kilogram, which is what a lot of companies look at for launch cost. And so if you had a traditional all-metal tank and you didn't discharge the batteries when they were depleted and you had a rocket that could put up 10 kilograms versus a fully composite tank with battery optimization that can put up a hundred kilograms. Even if the cost is twenty five percent more or fifty percent more, you have a ten x reduction in cost per kilogram, mm-hmm. right? So I think they definitely optimize that because, like, when you're building a small rocket, it is very very hard to get useful amounts of payload into right. orbit. So they're going for that and bottom half were, of the
0: fraction um, to get the the fraction. Uh, lower, they're going after making the the bottom part the mass, um, the carrying more mass to orbit instead of getting the cost of materials down.
2: Yeah, and if they were able to lift only you know five, ten kilograms, just a handful of cubesats on each flight, that would definitely hurt their business uh, opportunities. Now that they can put up a hundred kilograms. They can put up actual small sats, which a lot of the companies that are doing cubesat swarms are moving from one, five kilogram up to 10, 50, 100, they're looking to get larger. They are able to serve that market rather than being stuck to just a few cubesets at a time. Sure.
0: Okay, before we get off the topic of Rocket Labs, I want to mention one thing, and this is a grip. Okay, this is... I I un, un, I'm irrationally annoyed by this, and it just rubs me the wrong way. Okay, so I know it's a thing for startup companies to do... You know, cheeky stuff, you know, Elon selling flamethrowers, whatever. Um, but one of the payloads on still testing was <laughs> this stupid disco ball. Okay, so it's, what's it called, the Humanity Star? star yeah,
1: Humanity Star.
0: Okay, I, so I want to bring this up because I just think it's dumb. And <laughs> you're setting up this big, reflective, geodesic sphere, um, and for no reason okay like why it's just a big reflective thing if you're like th- i'm thinking of the astronomers out there like what it's just why
1: why from an astronomer's perspective i totally agree that this was this is irresponsible is not the right word but it's it's aggravating if you're an astronomer and you're doing research and you need to be taking pictures of this specific spot in the sky at these specific times and you've been doing this research for months and then there's this bright shiny object that's it's, going to wash everything it's, else out—it's that must be extraordinarily frustrating. It's
0: an intentional iridium spe- iridium flare. Like those yes. happen accidentally, but he's doing it
1: on purpose. Well, like, why? So the the why that they they say is to give us something to look up at that helps reflect our place in the universe. It's just there's a bit of humanity <laughs> flashing <laughs> okay. by. Okay. Yeah, no, it it's the it's isn't artistic. Enough. You got the sun. That puts you in your place, dude. It's the
0: same size as the moon, but it's nine point three million miles away. Doesn't that put you in your freaking place?
1: It's not going to be up for that long. It's not. Look through your telescope. It's at like, a relatively low orbit. Go it to, will eventually go to re-enter. Walmart. Buy a telescope. Look at the moon.
0: It's so interesting. There's all this stuff, and we went there, dude. That does
1: that put you? In your, you can't. Even, are you kidding me? That doesn't put you in your place, dude. So, this guy. All right. So this this launch. Sure, the, or the, oh this payload doesn't do much for anyone. No, um, it doesn't do it. It's, it's a it new story. Up. It's not it, even a memorial. It, it burns up after nine months. Yeah, it gets them publicity. Um, but I, I'd i be hopeful that this allows for more, just more interest in space and more interest in um, commercial applications of space. Now, this is this is silly. It doesn't serve they done a technical so, purpose. They could have done science. You know, like,
0: they cost so much to get into space. They could have done something. I mean, Elon's Roadster also rubs me the wrong way okay <laughs> so the fountain launching a roadster into space because you need a dummy mask like there's so much stuff you can do i i the fact is the like it's one of the original roadsters that's just so i don't care if it's the original roadster i don't care if it's a freaking refrigerator if you're if they're doing something like okay so where's carl Sagan? you know Voyager is out there hurtling through space outside of our solar system, and you've got the disc, right? There's no point... It's extra mass. There's no point of having a disc with some drawings and some rock and roll music. Like, there's no point. But at least Uh, the rest of... I believe the
2: point was to give hostile aliens a map to come back and enslave us.
1: Yeah, yeah. Details, details. And to put smut into space. (laughs) So,
0: (laughs) but, but at least, like, see, that has, like, the... It's... A, it feels like a genuine, like, you know, mission, uh, like, it, it it means something on a deeper level than, oh, let's reflect on humanity's place in the, like... Yeah, well, plus, Voyager's also
1: going for forever. The, yeah. This sphere will burn up. So all freaking CubeSats, dude. So I, wanna, I wanna, so, I want to
2: give a, a counter oh my argument. God. Okay, right? okay. I'll, I'm a, so, I, I understand okay. light pollution is not a good thing to have. It affects astronomers' work. However, as Drew and Phil mentioned, it's only going to be up there for nine months. So it's not a permanent blight in the night sky. But also, the real reason, like, they can put up flowery language on their site, but the real reason they're doing it is for PR, right? And I think if you look back at uh, Sputnik, the original first artificial satellite that orbited the Earth, that did the radio ping, millions of people across the planet tuned on their radios and listen to Sputnik pass by. And that had a huge increase in public awareness of space and the possibilities of space, and was kind of the starting point for the space race, right? And I think this is kind of a modern attempt at a Sputnik. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's a modern attempt at a Sputnik where instead of using a radio transponder, let's make it visible to the naked eye. We have a nice website that will tell you when it's passing overhead, when you can see it. And so, I think it's a really good, really low-cost PR stunt for Electron that raises their brand awareness, which is important because they're trying to win contracts and build up a reputation. And also, it just gets the general public, not just in the U.S., but in the entire world, whenever this passes over, more interested in space, right? Which I think is something that does need to be worked on consistently, that does have a benefit rather than a specific science machine. Yeah. Yeah. Right, because public relations is kind of the biggest stumbling block for modern space programs that are publicly funded. And I think this is a net positive. Uh, the damage is going to be minor. Astronomers yeah. already handle a flares without much problem. Right. So it's only going to be a nine month inconvenience for a few people. Sure. I mean, I just. So I, th- I think it's not a, a net negative.
0: I just feel like it's such a, it's like one of those things where, I don't know, it just doesn't feel, it's so, if they put a reflective thing and sent it on a path to Mars and you can look at it and be like, wow, that's going to Mars or wow, that's on Mars, something like, I feel like they're, they're projecting like all this grand stuff, but it doesn't really merit it. Like, it's one of those, it's like, I don't but, know, someone someone that's already super rich saying, like, you know, I feel bad for the people that are suffering right now. And it's like, but you don't show that in your
1: daily life. You know what I mean? Sure. That I mean, that's a bit I mean, of a stretch.
2: It's a stretch
1: of a... <laughs> okay, <laughs> let me... I, <laughs> but, I can on, use a on. different analogy. But. but this is the... It's... I want to go back to the Sputnik comment because the Sputnik thing was political, not just a PR stunt. That was propaganda True. um but it's a political pr stunt yeah, but this is ussr I mean, this is exactly its purposes pr we're talking about it we're talking about rocket labs although you might be angry about it were there's no such thing as bad so publicity I'm, right
0: i'm not angry i just feel like it, it it's such a missed opportunity like i feel like they could have they're they're pumping it up and saying it's a it's an empty pr stunt all it is is a reflective ball And things have been in Leo forever, and this is not the first small-scale launcher. You know, like they're not really breaking new ground here. Like, sure, it's important. Sure, it's great for the industry, but it's not novel. What they're—it's a dummy mass, and I feel like they don't.
2: To be fair, they launched three paying satellites as well. Okay, so this was their their kind of unique payload for their mission, which you know. Because it's a test, they they need to be low cost because sure. if they spend a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars on a useful satellite for each test mission, sure and they every time they get destroyed, that increases their. I cost. just
0: feel like they're lowering the bar for that type of thing. Like- I think
1: it's more of an I mean again, its purpose is PR, but it's also this kind of wave into the potential for art art in space. There okay. has been a proposal um for a for the twenty twenty Tokyo Games, the Olympics in Tokyo, mm-hmm. there has been a proposal to make an artificial meteor shower over the Olympics. Oh,
0: that's dangerous. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean everything will burn up, sure. but essentially you just you send up it's like uh, fireworks. satellites. It's still it's
0: no more dangerous than fireworks,
1: I guess. Yeah, no, it's yeah. probably less dangerous than fireworks. <laughs> but it's I mean, what a waste of money, right? To just you're you're sen- you're launching a rocket, putting up a satellite that's just going to dis distribute something that will burn up in the atmosphere f- in like ten seconds. Uh, but that will be so cool. How, like that's I mean, so cool.
0: Yeah, I I guess everyone you know has their opinions and stuff. There's everybody's people are going to be complaining about that too. I just I don't know. It's just one of those. I saw it and it, it's one of those. You know, it's 2018, man. That's what news does to you. It gets people riled up on both sides of the thing. We get talking about it about things that literally do not matter.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is also the not the first time that a reflective satellite has been launched. Uh, Russia launched something very, very similar uh, in 2017 on a Soyuz launch that was actually crowd funded uh, by a Russian website and acted as an art installation right and that was a CubeSat that would fold out and so like these things do happen it's a relatively low cost it's not trivial engineering but it's less engineering focused than you know a complex electrical engineering experiment or something along those lines and it's something that you know if you can deploy it. You don't need a radio communication system to confirm that it's up there. So it is, it is a good first artificial satellite for a lot of organizations. Right.
0: All right. So we've been talking about this for way too long. Let's talk about something else that is... Ex- one, one last
2: payload oh for Electron. Okay. So after the successful launch of Electron and the three paying satellites and the Humanity Star sphere, uh, Electron or Raga Labs announced that they had also launched an experimental kick stage or third stage for Electron Ooh, yes. on still testing. And that is important because Rocket Labs is booked for one of the Lunar x competitors. And so we could see this year a Lunar Lander rover combo launch on an Electron rocket, get pushed by a third stage to the moon, and then their system would autonomously land and deploy a rover on the surface of the moon, all through private uh, funding and private. Engineering. So a kick
0: stage is is powerful enough to, uh, you know, get it onto a lunar trajectory. Like you, because know, I mean, they're only launching so to Leo. Leo. They're only launching to Leo. They don't launch to Geo, as far as I know. So um, maybe that kick stage. Could it depends
2: depends on how big their uh, system is yeah
0: they could be clever about it maybe but that's I mean that's interesting that'll be fun to see uh, while I'm all riled up and frustrated let's talk about more failures uh, <laughs> Space, um recently had a failure with one of their launchers TJ do you want to explain that one
2: yeah so we had a relatively routine Space, uh Arian 5 launch out of French Guana I think that's how you pronounce that uh, insert date here but uh, it was a dual satellite launch and so what the Arian 5 is able to do is it has a multi-level payload adapter so they can actually put two relatively full size satellites on top to take advantage of the large payload mass of Arian 5. So they launch and if you watch the live stream we had camera feeds uh, for most of the first stage then then switched to a telemetry feed that showed first stage separation, second stage uh, ignition all the way into orbit Uh, and then right before uh, the first satellite separation uh, the feed cut off and we had um, reports coming out of airing space that they had actually lost telemetry of the, the rocket minutes and minutes ago that shortly after first stage separation they had lost all telemetry which a, please don't lie on your telemetry. Thank you. Uh, and two, uh, would indicate a mission failure. So props to the engineers in Arian space. They went in and did their, uh, their best work and were actually able to, not recover, but identify that the second stage of Ariane 5 had put the payloads into orbit. Uh, they weren't the correct orbit but it was close enough that both satellites uh had separated from the second stage and could go into their operating orbits. Yep. one so had a chemical a, propulsion
1: system and the other had uh an ion drive. So that one will take a while to get in took a while to get into its orbit, but they were able to reach their correct orbit. So it wasn't nominal success, but it
0: got
2: there. It's a partial failure, yeah. Where the payloads were put in the wrong orbit, but the satellites weren't lost. The satellites will go on to have full exciting lives uh in orbit but it does uh kind of make you aware of how uh on the bleeding edge uh launch services are and the risk of failure is always there no matter how many times you do a launch or how how many times you go through this process there's so much variability so much risk that it does happen even to some of the companies with the best records.
0: Yeah, and that was, like you said, that was meant to be routine, and there's still anomalies that happen. So did we ever get uh, a report on the problem or, um, you know, kind of autopsy report on what happened?
2: Uh, According to Aerospace, uh, telemetry feed just cut off shortly after second stage separation. So I don't know uh, if their investigation is ongoing. I don't know if there's extra information out there. But the last time I checked in, they had lost communication with the satellite and or the, the rocket. And fortunately, these rockets are autonomous. It was able to complete its uh, mission within a range of parameters. Right. And so the
0: reason why this is so scary, like yes, it worked out, but you know, one thing that the first thing I thought of, and probably I'm not alone, is that the James Webb Space Telescope. Will ride on one, uh, an Arian space rocket, and the margin of for error, like, <laughs> I mean, James Webb, I, I feel like,
1: talk about too big to fail. <laughs> like,
2: yes. So <laughs> the definition of too big to fail. So yeah, almost nine billion dollars.
1: Yeah,
0: and twenty years in twenty counting? years. Yeah, and there's a lot of time. A lot of, you know good science on the line to be fair and if that got launched in the kind of wrong orbit or whatever (laughs) i'm not sure that the james webb could recover no especially since it's it's going to l2 right yeah Yeah, it's going to like trailing lagrange point right um so it's going to be kind of being towed behind the earth uh, a little bit further away from the earth and looking at all parts of the universe in infrared and doing some hyperspectral, um, things. And it's supposed to be the next Hubble and Hubble is, you know, legendary. And James Webb promises to meet that, um, expectation. So, you know, I, it's just another, another thing that makes me facepalm when looking at the James Webb, uh, program. And it's like, Things I feel sorry for, these, for this program because things can't get any worse. Now they have to
1: worry about the launch or the riding. Well, Are you kidding me? do they, though? Because, yes, this was an anomaly, but Ariane and Arian 5 have had a, a great track record up until this point. But sure. one anomaly doesn't mean that the entire line of rockets is garbage. True. Um, and
2: Past performance does not indicate future performance. Correct.
1: Yeah, well, that goes in both directions, so there's no guarantee of success, but th- this is also not an indication that it's going to fail.
0: Yeah. but it, That's true. It's just a reminder that rocket science is hard, right? Um, I mean, at least it wasn't another Amos 6. Yeah. So, oh. sorry. Oh, Sorry, TJ.
2: <laughs> I just imagine James Webb just going boom. I'm just like, oh, no. Uh, mm. I would
0: burst into,
1: I would weep. Okay, like on behalf of everything, uh, uh, we would not through. be the only people. There are people whose careers are just James Webb. Or they
2: started their first job out of college was James Webb, and their last job out of college, until they retire, will be James Webb. Mm-hmm.
1: And the amount of research that James Webb will be capable of, all of that research would, you know, then be gone. Uh, Some of that research
0: would be done at RIT. Um. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So it. It. I mean it's just like even this partial failure honestly wasn't that bad you know they 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 lost cell signal for a little bit you know
2: they're... it wasn't that bad because they recovered
1: yeah well think about um was it voyager 2 that they had to the the centaur stage had to correct for something that went wrong in the initial flight uh in order to get voyager 2 on its way to the you know its correct flyby of jupiter uh and they had three seconds of fuel left mm-hmm. to give it the boost it needed, so there have been many close, close calls in space, and this is about as minimally damaging as a failure can be. But, as Phil, you pointed out, space I mean, is hard. Makes me scared, dude.
2: Yes. So, so hopefully, uh, Ariane 5 is nice and healthy by the time James Webb launches sometime in the 2020s or 2030s. That's it
1: asterisk <laughs> all right so someday so um all right well we're an hour in already so let's let's go to the nasa stuff yeah nasa so um i, I this one I'll get tj
0: talking i think so commercial crew um spacex and boeing are uh both building uh crewed capsules that will ferry astronauts to and from the international space station Um, and they're both on parallel timelines, right? SpaceX has had the lead for a while now, um, in their projected completion date of their milestones. First, they're going to do, you know, they've done, um, life support testing. Their uh, other milestones on the way are, um, you know, abort testing, in flight abort, um, uncrewed testing, and then finally a crewed test. And recently, We've seen a shift in milestones to where um, Boeing's Starliner capsule is predicted to take astronauts to the space station before SpaceX's Dragon. So I figured TJ would have something to say about this as, you know, the resident SpaceX fanboy here. Big
2: thumbs up? So, I mean, there's been... Rumors of delays of commercial crew pretty much every month of the program since it started. Um, There's been a lot of issues early on about not having full funding, which stretched out these timelines from 2015 to now it's 2018, 2019. Uh, Also, there's a couple things that are kind of leading delays currently. So first up is Falcon 9 Block 5. NASA had some concerns they wanted to uh, have addressed before crew fly on a Falcon 9. And that includes cracks in turbine blades, uh, turbo pump uh, blades. Uh, So there's a new upgraded version of the Merlin 1D, because why name it anything else? Uh, They'll be flying on Block 5 that has those improvements. Then there's uh, the COPV, COPV, as Chris says. COPV issue, uh, which was resulted in AMO6, um, and also, also a COPV issue on CRS7, where...
0: The CRS7 was
2: strut. It was a strut holding a COPV. Oh, okay. so kind of related. <laughs> kind of related. Um, but for those that don't know, AMO6 had liquid oxygen uh, get under the carbon fiber binding uh, of the COPV tank, and due to very complex physics on the edge of material science, solid oxygen formed, reacted with the carbon lining, causing it to buckle and causing an ignition or an explosion that destroyed the vehicle. Yeah, COPV is so a NASA carbon overwrap pressure vessel. Pressure vessel, yeah. So SpaceX is working on updated designs that don't have that. The immediate solution was to change their fueling procedure because they've been using that technology without issue for many launches before. So now NASA uh, is paying SpaceX to develop, uh, I believe, titanium only pressure vessels. So no carbon uh, fiber overwrap, just uh, a stronger metal. And those are, those weigh more, but are more in line with what other rockets use. Uh, So it's a more proven technology. And so there's a chance that NASA might force SpaceX to use the titanium COPVs instead of the new COPVs. Oopsie. Anyways, um, but that's an extra addition to the timeline. And on top of all of that...
0: How much addition could that be, swapping it out for a different design? But anyway, well, okay. Not continue. not only does
2: it not only does it's it it's a different technology, and you're swapping it out, but it ch- changes the weight characteristics of the rocket. Okay. Right, because you have heavier mass closer to the bottom of the tanks, and you also have just more dry mass. Okay. So you have less performance, which sure. performance is an issue on on. You're flying ships. to the
0: ISS, so okay. Yeah. But it changes the flight characteristics and all that. I can see that. Okay.
2: And on top of all of this. SpaceX agreed that they NASA wants to see seven block Block Five missions before crew can board a Crew Dragon and Block Five Saturn fa- or Falcon Nine to the ISS. Which, with SpaceX's current flight rate, that's not that bad. It's two months, two and a half does months that inc- of flight. Does that
0: include uh test flights like uh in-flight abort? Yes.
2: Well, not in-flight on board, but any flight of uh, Falcon 9, Block 5. So those are some leading causes of delays.
0: So they're going to fly Block 5 seven times. And seven times before crew can go. Okay.
2: In comparison, Boeing with Starliner uh, is flying on a somewhat new variant of Atlas V. They're using a... Two engine Centaur, so that's two RL10 engines, because uh, crew drag or Starliners would be a heavy payload, and they want to have better performance uh, and less coasting time. Uh, it also has that aerodynamic shroud on top because it's a huge bulbous thing with multiple core diameter genes. Uh, and Atlas V, uh, that new variant, will only have to fly two. T- Two times before Boeing is allowed to fly a crew.
0: So even with the slower flight rate, Boeing has to fly fewer times. And then SpaceX has to fly more times. So that's how we're getting our projection for when they're going to hit these milestones?
2: That is, that's uh, a contributing factor. To be fair, SpaceX agreed to seven. and Boeing agreed to two. They could have not agreed to that. like. It's not.
0: No, I mean, no one's disputing them. numbers. They both. They both seem like reasonable uh, things. Everyone wants to be saved. No one wants to have to use their abort system. And like, I think both are reasonable. Um, I just thought it was an interesting uh, shift in the timelines because for the longest time, SpaceX has been predicted to to beat Boeing, and like that's you know one of the right
2: now. Both timelines are so are still so much in flux that it like. I think they're scheduled for one month ahead. That's not like, that could change.
0: One month of slip can happen because of weather,
2: (laughs) if we're honest, right? Yeah. The big issue, the biggest cause of delays in the past year and a half has been micrometeor impact ratings and the calculation for loss of crew. So uh, NASA has two numbers. There's loss of mission and loss of crew, which is out of how many flights Or how many flights would it take for one flight to result in the mission objective not being achieved, which is loss of mission, or for a crew to be lost in flight. And the space shuttle, as a baseline, had pretty terrible numbers. It was one in 68 missions uh, of actual, the actual number of the program, the calculated engineering number was much, much higher back in the, uh, the 80s. But... Back when we still Constellation and the Orion, pro- well, not Orion, back in the Constellation program and when commercial crew was coming up, they defined we wanted it to be 100 times better than the space shuttle. It's kind of an arbitrary goal. 600. Oh, yeah. And they gave these uh, numbers to the competitors and they're like, okay, well, we're going to design our, our capsule based on proven technology, news technology, and we'll see what the number is. And it became very, very apparent that 1 in 600 is extremely high and rather unreasonable. And so that's been slowly dropped down until we get to this 100, 1 in 270 number, which again is arbitrary, uh, but it's a number that both sides agreed that was, was possible. And so they've been working on that number over the course of the program. The issue with micrometeorites is this Spacecraft will go to the ISS and will dock there, and will be there upwards of six months. So you have six months of low orbital altitude flying uh, where potential debris can impact the spacecraft. And if the heat shield gets damaged and the crew enters the vehicle to return, that could generate a loss of crew event. right? And so with that, there's been a lot of controversy between what model each company is using. Because the number can vary widely between the two. Whoa,
0: whoa, whoa! They're not using the same loss of crew
2: model. They're not the loss of crew model. The same micrometeor impact model between the two. Okay. And so there's been a lot of back and forth and friction between NASA and the the contractors between that number. And also, uh, we've seen things like propulsive uh, landings cut to increase loss of crew number, and other things that were initially announced with Crew Dragon. And so, until that gets settled, and until, you know, design freeze is like, okay, let's churn these things out and get them flying, delays are inevitable. Now, to be fair, there are four Dragon 2s in production. Uh, I think a qualification, DM1, DM2, and the first contracted flight. Um, so. Things are happening, but if there's any significant design changes to happen, we could see a big delay because hardware is getting created. Right. All right, well,
0: it seems like um, Commercial Crew is still pretty much on track. Uh, I'm looking forward to both companies uh, hitting their milestones. Um, and it's, yeah, it's neck and neck. So,
2: uh, And one thing the new numbers mean is that Very unlikely to see Grey Dragon in 2018, in December, because they want to reuse a flown Crew Dragon. And so, because the first flight of Crew Dragon got pushed.
0: So we won't see Grey Dragon until the first first unmanned Dragon capsule flies?
2: I would say it would probably have to happen after the first manned Crew Dragon mission, which is currently scheduled for December. And then... Depending on how DM one is engineered, if all the features are included, unlike Orion, uh refurbish that and then fly it.
1: I hope the customers on Grey Dragon stay flight healthy. Yeah. For the next three plus years. Yeah. Sure. Um
2: it's a year and a half. Maybe. Maybe. Ideally.
0: Alright, so we got one last thing to talk about today. And this is another NASA story. Um, and I'm going to let uh, Drew talk about this one. This is New Frontiers.
1: Right. So the New Frontiers program is a program that develops exploration missions for space uh, that NASA runs. And in, in the past, this has been New Horizons, uh, which has gone past Pluto, uh, the Juno mission to Jupiter, and OSIRIS-REx, which will be returning uh, something from the asteroid belt. Um And there are two new finalists for this program, so two new ideas that may become missions that we see fairly soon.
0: So right now they're developed paper ideas, right? Correct. It's all
1: mission design right now. Um, And the two finalists, there have been plenty of others that have received some amount of funding to continue their research, but the two primary finalists, which have been now awarded the last round of funding to develop their ideas, to the end, um, are a lander uh, that would go to Titan and be a rover. But unlike the Mars rovers, this wouldn't be on the ground. This would be a flyer. So something that could rapidly transverse over the the thick atmosphere of Titan and go and explore, hopefully, a lot of places very quickly, which this is just sounds so cool. Now, one of the problems might be, in order to fly, you can't necessarily have a very high mass. So what instruments will this flyer have? Um, but that's just a really cool idea. Not only is it another uh, another exploratory rover to a moon, but it's going to be a flyer. And do we know if this is going to be quadcopter-esque or more glider has. Um closer to a quadcopter, I believe the conceptual designs have it having eight rotors. Okay. Um so yeah. octocopter. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> um the the other finalist is a mission that would collect and return samples from the surface of a comet. Specifically the comet that was visited by the European Space Agency's um, Philae lander, so mm-hmm. that one that put a lander on the surface of the comet and then had an orbiter um, and there was a really cute webcomic about them. Uh, but that mission's over and this would be returning to that same comet, collecting a sample from the surface from the nucleus of the of the comet and returning it to Earth for future study. Is, so is this the same as Rosetta? Wait, like, which, which comet so is that?
2: this is a follow-up to Rosetta. So this is a follow-up mission to Ro- the Rosetta Philae landers. Uh, and the comment is 67P Churimov-Gerasimenko?
0: Right, no, so so down, it's... So. um,
2: But that's sample return? Yes, so... So it's actually really, really cool. They're doing a bump landing. Hmm. So... Yeah, um, that was a problem
0: with Philae. They wanted to... So Philae was the, the little mini guy that shot out a harpoon, but it bounced into a shadow, mm-hmm. right? And they couldn't attach... Um, I think OSIRIS Rex is doing a similar thing where they're going to like basically punch it, and while they're punching, they're going to grab or something like that. Um.
2: So, this mission is going to use a touch and go, so it's going to uh, slowly descend to the comet, and then it's going to hit. It's going to use a nitrogen gas cannon or mm-hmm. thruster to blast dust off the surface of the comet back into their sample collector, and then that's going to push it off uh, back into not being landed on a comet. Sure. So they're trying to get anywhere from like 100 to 800 grams well, of material, dude, that's which is pretty hot. substantial. And the official mission name is called Caesar, the Comet Astrobiology Exploration Sample Return.
1: And, that's a, and it has a decent so acronym. Is, okay, I, I like this. I'm on board. <laughs> the principal investigator, yes, interestingly, so. is Steve Squires from Cornell University. And he led a large portion of the uh, rover missions to mars so he was the principal investigator on those as well
0: yeah and both um the early missions the rover missions to mars were kind of long shots too right um what path Pathfind- was he on pathfinder or spirit and opportunity or he was definitely
1: with spirit and opportunity and he may have been pathfinder, yeah because those
0: know. those um i listened to a few featured episodes on um we martians podcast actually nice little plug for them um where he talked to people that were on that program Mars rovers you know it's mars like we it's like one of the closest <laughs> neighbors to earth right and it's so hard to get things there um but you got to be innovative and scrappy and um think outside the box so um these these are so cool so this is a competition right so the finalists there's no chance of NASA picking both
1: not immediately in the uh, New Frontiers. A, they wouldn't both be chosen simultaneously in New Frontiers. At least there's no... But they could both
0: happen, happen eventually, before. maybe, under different names and different... So
2: values. so both missions got moved to the second phase mm-hmm. of the program. So they're getting $6 million in development okay. funding to kind of flesh out the designs. And Dragonfly do, doesn't look like it has a date. Of launch, but Caesar does. They want to launch in twenty twenty four, uh, get to the comet twenty twenty nine, and eventually return in twenty thirty eight.
0: Right. So these are pretty. Um, twenty twenty four is pretty close. I'd be surprised if they. Um. Uh, that's very surprising to me. So when I think NASA missions, I'm I'm thinking. James, James Webb, Webb Cassini, you know. Like, these people spend their careers on it. So, uh, I guess it's a different, there's a different nature to it, right? Because these are uh, probes. These aren't observatories. These aren't. Um,
2: these are trying to be right. faster. Faster development. More, like, out yeah, there Yeah, I think that's that's the purpose risk. of the
0: New Frontiers umbrella, right? It's to promote this type of thing. Yeah. So, um, oh, man, these are super exciting. I want to do this. This is what I want to do for a living. So, that's the dream. If you're listening, my name is Philip Linden. Connect with me on LinkedIn.
2: So, quality. Yeah, there's also two missions that got—they weren't uh, moved into the six million dollar funding round, but they got continuing funding to to flush their maps more. Uh, the Elsa mission and life signatures and habitability which is designed to limit spacecraft contamination uh, so that when we do send something to, say, Enceladus, where we have a hope that there might be life under the the ice crust, we don't contaminate those samples. And also there's the Vichy mission, the Venus in-situ composition investigations, uh, which is developing a camera called the Venus Element and Mineralogy Camera to survive the high pressure and high heat of mm-hmm. Venus so they can actually... Uh, send a lander to Venus, shoot a laser at the rocks, and be able to uh, do spectroscopy on the gases that release to better understand the surface of Venus.
0: Speaking of Venus, uh, another um, mission, not NASA, this is actually the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA, right? They, um, a couple of years ago, they sent a probe to Venus. That's why I bring it up. And just recently,
1: we find out it's alive. I guess <laughs> it's alive, and it it seems to have made it. Um, apparently, some of its uh, engines blew up uh, seven years ago, <laughs> but it, it and everyone counted it out as as a lost mission. But it seems to have reached uh, Venus and is uh, taking pictures. So yeah. there's a lot of cool images now coming out of of that. Yeah,
0: so it, uh, some things you can look up online um, from. Akatsuki is the mission name. Um, And it looked at Venus in infrared and ultraviolet. And you can see some really nice um, composite photos of the cloud structure on Venus. And so they look great, right? Okay, this is infrared. Wow, that's infrared. Wow, that's ultraviolet. And I was like, where's the visible? So I looked it up. It's so boring. So you look at a cloud (laughs) and it's white you know, from space. You can't even see any structure. It's just a white ball, invisible. Um, Venus is. that's It's super reflective. It's one of the reasons why it's so bright in the night sky. Uh, but if you look in the other wavelengths outside of human vision, um, like infrared and ultraviolet, you get a lot of interesting cloud structure. So, um, And right now, we only have, like, one picture from the surface of Venus from a Russian mission, uh, like, many, many years ago. Um, so... I'd really like to see some more research and attention given to Venus, but it's, it's a very uh, inhospitable place to send equipment.
1: Yep. But I'm excited to see what comes out of this research. Yeah, me too.
0: All right. That's all I had for today. Um, we we're just getting together, uh, chat for a little bit, have some quality space talking time, right? Thanks for chatting with you guys. We're we're semi-remote right now. TJ's out in Colorado. Um, I'm visiting Rochester to see uh, Drew and some other people. So um, this is fun. Let, we got to do this more. We have to do this more. Yes, we do. All right. Thanks for listening to Spexcast. Um You can follow us on Twitter. We're very active there at RIT Specs. That's R-I-T-S-P-E-X. Uh, you can visit RIT Space Explorations website at specs.rit.edu. Um, and you can get in touch with us by email as well. We are specscast at gmail.com. Right, we look forward to having more episodes in the future. We're still working on scheduling and a few more things. So we'll catch you next time. Yeah, in
1: the past six months we've had two graduations. Oh my god.
0: Uh, it's been ridiculous. And you're next.
1: Yeah. Your next group.